Hey folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. I am again your host, Mark Fraser. I am joined by the world's tallest man, Chris Kutak. <laughs> <laughs> that was the world's tallest tail. <laughs> you see? I used to call myself six feet and then I was subjected to an online bullying campaign <laughs> yeah. by a bunch of shorter pals that were like, yeah. are you fuck six feet? Definitely not. Yeah, I'm 181 centimetres. I'm about yeah, a centimetre short of six feet and... The shit I took for, for, for rounding up. I mean, excuse me for fucking rounding up a centimetre. Fake news. Why is it so important to you to round up a centimetre? That's, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe because it was so important to them to pull me down for six feet. Mm. Aye. Mm-hmm. Like, you need to round down. <laughs> You need to round down, that's the etiquette. You round down, you can't, you can't even claim in height you didn't have. Who um, makes these rules? Fucking, honestly, man, everyone's a critic. Anyway, aye, it's me, I'm on the show. Congratulations. <laughs> Vicky, how tall are you? Five foot three and three quarter inches. Didn't be, fo- that's five foot three. What? Well, uh, <laughs> three quarters. Yeah, round down, aye, so it's five foot three. <laughs> five foot three. <laughs> small. I'm small. Uh, you're Smile. just below average for a woman, I believe, mm-hmm. in Scotland. Mm-hmm. What's the tallest country in the world? Um, it's Hol- it's Holland. The Netherlands, isn't it? It's the Netherlands. It's the Netherlands. Fascinating. There you go. That's hey. the show. <laughs> <laughs> this is stuff you should know. Yeah, join us uh, next week. <laughs> it's weird that they're the tallest country in the world with like a metre below sea level in places. Uh, yeah, they need it. Yeah. They uh-huh. need that. They can wave through the water. The <laughs> <laughs> nice cap start melting. Get used to it. That's what you get for having a boring country as well. Mm. Anyway, don't be boring things. Mark, yeah. you got any admin for this? I've week? got some boring admin. Aye. Um, so. As everyone will know who's listened to this just now, via whatever platform, you will have seen the recent announcement of the Unsung Record Club, which is our new Patreon subscription service that we are fucking super excited about. Um, super excited. Super mega ultra excited. There, is, there has been no more excited people than us. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> Chris was so excited. He's definitely been rounding up. Shitting himself for the past two <laughs> days. Right, right. I, 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 I couldn't contain my excitement. <laughs> Shit, you couldn't contain anything. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, the, all the details of that are on are on a Patreon page, they're on our website, they're everywhere you can view our podcast. You will see the news of this uh, incredible, fantastic announcement. I'm not going to say any more because we did seven minutes worth of advertising <laughs> on it, so go and listen to that. Yeah, we've recorded an advert for it. Please go and listen to one of the many adverts that have uploaded to many platforms and then also read the kind of nitty gritty details to just hopefully to put your mind at rest. Mm-hmm. It's a cool new concept. Uh, we hope it catches on. Should we Should we give them like the cliff notes? Like, there's three tiers now, you get three records, that's it. It's the cliffiest of cliff notes Uh, Yep, there's the normal sub thing But now there's two new ones that replace all the other bump The first one is a digital record club And the second one's an analogue record club That we curate Your Mm -hmm. hosts You can choose which host sends your records out each month uh, Or you can take potluck And basically for one or the other You get a bunch of properly good music All purchased direct from unsigned And independent artists and labels To try and fund their future work And at the the same time Get records to to you that you'll almost certainly Never encounter unless we do it this way So like Chris says Anywhere you can consume this podcast The information on that is there So go and find it Yep. Now I somewhat intentionally threw down the gauntlet this week by picking what I knew was probably going to be quite a divisive record. I'm going to be honest, right? 
It's one that I don't actually know why I like it, but I do really <laughs> like it. And that's kind of why I wanted to dig into it and discuss it a mm-hmm. wee bit. Yeah. And so a lot of the research I did for this week was actually like sitting with myself and thinking, what am I finding in this? Because normally this is a style of music that would that would leave me quite cold. Mm-hmm. And for some reason this didn't. And it's not like I had any particular attachment to it. It mm-hmm. just seemed to stick when mm-hmm. so many others didn't. So I've chosen the album Factory Floor by the artist Factory Floor. It's from 2013, it was released on DFA, which is a very, very cool alternative electronic underground label. The band are from London, uh, formed in 2005 originally by uh, Gabriel Guernsey and Mark Harris. Dominic Butler joined, um, Harris then left to form some project called Shiftwork and was replaced by Nick Colk. She's a, an ex-member of an indie band called Kato. Yeah. And I don't know if you remember because there's a band from Glasgow called Kato who were a, yeah. a, a band that Vicky and I quite liked. And they spell their name differently. They spell it differently, yeah. So and it was always like a source of confusion. Mm-hmm. So turns out Nick is from that other Kato that mm-hmm. was part of causing that confusion. Um, I've seen this band live um, in one of their later incarnations, uh, unfortunately without the live drums. But uh, Guernsey was basically on drums and drum loops. Butler was in modular synths in electronics. I'll explain what modular synths are. And Colk was on like vocals, guitars and samples. Mm. Now, one of the things I really liked about their earlier stuff is that they were like a live electronic band. And that's something I'm personally really into. I really like the idea that you can produce electronic music, but perform it and Mm -hmm. have a performative aspect. I... I'm not ashamed to admit I quite enjoy things like Perturbator, but I've seen I've been to see Perturbator live. And I mean as much as uh, he had a whole bunch of stuff set up. I'm fairly sure it wasn't plugged in and there was literally just a laptop and he was diving about behind mm. it. Mm. Um, that's the way with a lot of uh, electronic music. Either that or it's Ableton Live kind of triggered pads and things like mm. that. Factory Floor were different, are different, were different. They're not quite so different now. Uh, they had live percussion and the modular synths thing is really interesting because that's really... People that get into modular synths are obsessive. So have you guys yeah. ever seen them? Yeah, I'm all guitar teacher, I'm modular synth obsessive. Right, so it's basically like a, quite often like a custom built sort of housing unit. You know, they can be different sizes. Some of them are like the size of bookcases, huge bookcases. Mm-hmm. Some of them are just sort of little kind of tabletop uh, setups. Ben from Blank Mass uses one of those ones. Uh, and what they buy is the little individual components are all slotted in and then wired in certain sequences. Rather than buying one big pre-made synth, which is all these different features on it. A modular synth is where you buy the features individually, mm-hmm. sort of like buying like a great car, but buying it component at a time mm-hmm. or something. You know, it's all very bespoke. Uh, 
and okay. they are very very fussy and enthusiastic <laughs> and mm-hmm. excited about the various little components some of which are extremely expensive and the, the, the degree to which uh, certain ones will give you much better results than inferior ones you know it's quite a it's quite a subculture it's, mm-hmm. it, I mean it is interesting but it's also a dark pit to go down you know mm-hmm. that it's like a joke amongst modular synth fans about you know that is their consuming yeah exactly mm-hmm. Uh, but there's also a lot of craft to it. It's hard to get tones out of modular synths. It's not like on a digital synth where you just press a button and suddenly you're playing a keyboard like Vangelis. Mm-hmm. You know, you, it takes work. You have to kind of create signals and modify signals. And it take, it's like a labour of love to, to really use them. And especially to use them live because they're very unpredictable live. You can't just mm-hmm. switch on a button and get the same tone that you use every single time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... There's there's a craft to that, and it's mm-hmm. also something that a certain audience really appreciates. Sure, yeah. Yeah. So this aspect of Factory Floor, I really enjoyed the fact that they had this sort of analog quality to their live performances mm-hmm. with real drums and modular synths and, th- and guitar as mm-hmm. well, and even the vocal samples performed live, always slightly different, processed quite a bit, but you know, still done on the hoof. And as a result, as well, a lot of the performances, the songs would could go for any indeterminate amount of time, because mm-hmm. as I'm sure you noticed. They're quite repetitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but um, so if I just want to come in here a wee bit and say that at first, and of Chris, you know this because I texted you, I was like, what the hell is this? And I wasn't really feeling it right. But for me, everything that you've just said there and what I've read about it since, that context round about it and the effort round about it really changes how I feel about it mm. as well. And I know what you mean about people that do like electronic music on stage and they're using like a computer program or something like that, right? It leaves you totally cold watching stuff like that. It's not of the reason why I go to see live music, you yeah. know? And I think that I really do appreciate that there's this kind of, as you say, craft, skill involved in the performer having an impact on the tones, the instrumentation, all of that kind of thing. That for me is something that's more attractive to me than maybe what I first thought I was listening to. And um, I know we'll speak more about the repetitiveness of it. That's not really a problem for me because mm. there's loads of other, you know, I like Philip Glass, right? Mm-hmm. He's, yeah, he'll get he's mention, all yeah. about repetitive structures. So for me, that wasn't the issue at first. I think the album that you picked, the emotion that it kind of um, triggered, I want to say trigger, but it sounds like I'm like mm. a, a Vietnam vet or something, but it does kind of make me have a panic attack. <laughs> so, um, hey, you know, that, that, that unreleased tension is something that I saw loads of reviews mentioning about the uh-huh. band. Um, I hadn't really clicked on that at first, but yeah. Can I say just to compliment what you were saying there as well? I think partly what you're hinting at is the chaos aspect of live music and Mm. one of the things I always find thrilling about live music is the idea that it could all fall apart at any given moment and I feel it's too safe using laptops you know it's it's all pre-programmed and sequenced and taken care of and there's something about the approach whether it's guitar bass and drums whether it's synths whether it's this modular stuff you know someone could fuck up someone could go out of time somebody could do the wrong thing and I 
think it's about the relationship between the performer and the audience watching as well. There's some kind of trust there, isn't there, as well, and some kind of expectation and communication. And I think that sometimes it just falls totally flat and cold when it's just somebody with a computer or, mm. or whatever, you know. So, I mean, they've, they've been praised in a lot of circles for attempting a different style of modern electronic music, uh, rejecting the sort of high production trend of, of EDM. I mean, I mean, it's ironic that in, in doing that, they're actually prioritising sort of the sensibilities of bygone eras and, and progenitors, which I think in its own way is also quite a hip approach. Um, they didn't always sound the way they sound, and in fact, the way they sound now is not how they sounded during this album and how when I got into them. Uh, their, their first single, I, th- I think it was the first single, it's 2008, uh, called Bipolar, really sounds sort of like a cross between Joy Division and The Fall. It's very sort of like cold wave post-punk mm. um, There was some good descriptions of it As a metronomic synth noir And Fact magazine had called it Pared down no wave electronic rock the, the vocal in it is pretty incoherent The bass in it, is, the bass guitar Is quite filthy and distorted and weird It's a cool song It is still very repetitive That, that ingredient is in there early on But it's, I wouldn't say it sounds like a totally different band But it's very far removed It does sound like a much cruder More primitive uh, take on it As I said, they're from London It does always take Something special for me To nominate a London band Mm -hmm. Um, I personally find this band To be really quite painfully London hip the, the style of music, the aesthetic Even the nods towards like factory records And that whole kind of musical world it, it reminds me of those slick vinyl stores You get in, in places like Soho and Camden Where there's only 20 records in the whole shop And they're all on their own little ledge You know, it's all very minimalist and chic um, Or they have those, you know, those magazines Where you don't even know what kind of magazine it is It's all just like really high quality photos on it and, cred- mm. and you're like, the fuck is this? magazine is it, is it like a catalogue <laughs> is it like a lifestyle thing are these interviews yeah. you know they remind me of that world um the enemy uh, has when it's written about them maintained that the band tried really hard to avoid that hip london scene i still think they seem pretty hip but um the band themselves have also said that they specifically moved to a warehouse in the seven sisters area of london which i think is considered not the most desirable uh, to avoid being tied in with any of the kind of electronic movements that were happening at the time but i mean They've also done live shows at Tate Modern, so mm. it's pretty fucking hip, guys. Yeah. And sometimes you just have to make peace with that. They're on James Murphy's record label, so... Yeah. Like. <laughs> <laughs> um, the early EPs uh, and singles, as I say, were kind of cold wave. There's a lot more guitar in them. Live drums, as I mentioned, they've, sh- they've shaken up quite a bit since then. The debut album that we're going to go into quite a bit uh, deals with minimalist techno and crowd, and there's a lot of labels kicking around. Um, just to skip a wee bit ahead, 2525 is their second full length album. I was already into the band at that point 
I got the record quite enthusiastically, you know, one of those very few occasions where you go down to the record store and are like, mm-hmm. oh yes, this is out today. And I was really quite disappointed by it. Right. Um, I feel they've now drifted a little bit too far from that sort of winning formula. It, it's quite acid in its vibe, you know, even it's right from the start of the first song, there's really acid techno, kind of sort of synth lines, squelchy. So yeah, I, I'm not really going to die in any hill for them now mm-hmm. since, but I do think that the Factory Floor album is the sweet spot. Mm. Well, that album for 2018, that a soundtrack for a film, I thought that was pretty good as See, well. See, I've not heard that one. I thought, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I really enjoyed that, I have to say it. Maybe I even enjoyed it more than the one that you've picked. Yes, that's fair enough. It's a a bit of it is long. It's like two and a half hours long. long. It's it's basically two albums, but it it does flow like a soundtrack to a film. Mm -hmm. Like I mean, that's the name, the the clues in the name. I found it really great for just doing work and concentrating to. Like in the way that a lot of great minimalist, mostly instrumental music is, you know, like it kind of pulls you into deep focus almost. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I did actually enjoy it quite a lot as well. Um, it, it has a lot, has a lot of dynamics on it in terms of the, where the song structures go, like a film. ups and downs and actually less linear I guess That's still repet- it's still repetitive in places don't get me wrong but some of the songs are still like 11-12 minutes long Yeah, you know what I mean but it does feel more um, cinematic in general yeah. in, in scope you know so like th- that's that's curious actually it's also self-released as well mm. could be good could be bad for them mm-hmm. they've actually worked with the Glasgow label Optimo on a single called Real Love and at that point they were being called Death Disco Um, so there's a couple of issues that really uh, come to mind when I, when I think about this band. The first one for me is that, that the mainstream media cannot seem to agree on what to describe them as. And in fact, I'm sure we can't either. There are a hell of a lot of titles that are going to get thrown about. Maybe we could dig into that because it was difficult for me because I didn't actually know what a lot of these tags meant. So three that came up commonly were post-industrial, tech house, and minimal wave, right? There are whole loads more that we'll, we'll probably mm-hmm. mention, but those are the three that kept reappearing, right? Um, there's a what pitch- is minimal wave? Well, exactly, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll pull that apart. A Pitchfork quote regarding the album that we're discussing uh, says, This release now orients Factory Floor along an axis of artists that embrace industrial, post-punk, disco, acid, avant-garde minimalism, electro, dub, and most crucially, the dance floor, without being beholden to any one genre. So that kind of sets the ball rolling there because, as I've said, the band keep changing their sound mm-hmm. and the sound that, or at least the sound they were at the last time I spent any time with them, I wasn't a huge fan of. Uh, to, to look at those three tags in a wee bit more detail, 
post-industrial, well, first and foremost, we have to talk about industrial. Industrial music comprises many styles of experimental music, including many forms of electronic music. The term was coined in the mid-70s uh, due to Industrial Records, the label. Um, the first industrial artists experimented with noise and also controversial topics, which, by the way, is a, a theme that we've touched on in everything from the black metal episode mm-hmm. to any number of Nexi. Uh, they can be quite edge, edgy, the edgiest of edge lords. The productions were often not limited to just music, but included things like art, performance art, installation pieces. And some of the prominent names for that original sort of era include Throbbing Gristle. Cabaret Voltaire. A guy called Boyd Rice, who's a real piece of shit. Uh, SPK, Test Department, Clock DVA, Nocturnal, Laybach, The Leather Nun. Um, and, and loads more besides Yeah, okay. and do you know that Nick Coke has worked with uh, Chris Carter and uh, Cozy Tootie from Strub and Gristle? Well, here's the thing So, Factory Floor have remixes by members of Joy Division, New Order, Throb and Gristle The folk you're talking mm-hmm. about um, So, their, their post-punk industrial enthusiasms and credentials are, are definitely quite apparent mm-hmm. So I can see where that label's coming from The only thing is, industrial, and po- I'd imagine post-industrial as well Is a very vague term you know, I would use industrial to refer to ministry. I would use industrial to some extent to refer to Rammstein. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's certainly a million miles away from Throbbing Gristle or Cabaret Voltaire. You know, so it's a, it's a very broad, amorphous term. But I guess that being the case, you can apply it to almost anything. Um, the Tech House one was really opaque to me because I'm there's so many subdivisions of fucking house, mm-hmm. acid house, tech fucking whatever right um, so I had to kind of consult the internet on this one and pull some notes together um, as a mixing style Tech House often brings together deep or minimal techno music uh, the soulful jazzy end of house uh, some dub elements however the typical progressive house mix has more energy than Tech House which tends to have a more laid back feel so that checks out mm-hmm. um, Definitely, yeah. Tech House fans tend to appreciate subtlety as well as the middle ground that adds a splash of colour uh, and eschew the banging of house music for more intricate rhythms so I was like okay that's maybe not inaccurate as a musical style Tech House uses the same basic structure as house however some of the elements of the house sounds such as realistic jazz sounds uh, and you know big booming kick drums are replaced with elements from techno which tend to be things like shorter deeper distorted kick drums really tight hats noisy snares and then a load of synthetic or acid things from machines like the 303s um, so that I wouldn't say necessarily applies to them as much. Mm-hmm. Some of the drum effects are quite synthetic, mm-hmm. but they've also got a lot of really analog percussive sort of. They sound almost like real world effects. Yeah, like, they do have some live drums. I'm pretty sure they do on this record. Yeah, yeah. By the way, it should disambiguate. There is another definition of tech house kicking about, which is a newer, more technical form of progressive house, where it sounds almost like Vangelis. It's much bigger and synthy. It's not that. But anyway, minimal wave. Now, as you said, Mark, what is that? I'd never heard of it. And it turns out it's actually a really quite modern term. 
It's a broad classification of music that comprises obscure, atypical examples of genres such as new wave, stripped-down electronic or synthesizer music, synth-pop, post-punk and cold wave. Most of the music, crucially, tends to focus on electronic pre-midi instrumentation and themes of sincere rather than ironic detachment. I want to just break that down, right? So pre-midi. Midi is uh, basically a kind of language that allows you to control different synths with a con- with a control module. So let's just say it's a keyboard and the keyboard doesn't have any actual sounds programmed into it. The keyboard plays whatever you plug it into. But the thing is with MIDI, you can then record MIDI and apply it to any instrument you want. Okay, it's not like picking up a synth and just playing it where you've only got the sound you recorded. With MIDI, you're basically actually recording the pattern you play and then you can you can play that pattern back through any system that you want except MIDI. Mm. Now that's really versatile. I use it a lot. I love it. Loads of people, it's indispensable for them. But a lot of these musicians preferred to avoid that. They preferred to just use sounds that they were creating there and then. You know, so if they were playing a synth line or doing some modular mm. synth work, it was one and only time. You know, that was the performance and the performance was a performance. You couldn't then reinterpret it through another system. So that's that's quite a sp- specific thing and that definitely tracks with them. Minimal Wave comes from the founder of Minimal Wave Records, or at least she claims it does, uh, a woman called Veronica Vashiska. I'm going to say Vashiska. It could be Vasika. I'm not sure. Um, she claims to have coined the genre, although that does draw a bit of contention. Although much Minimal Wave stuff is classified in the late 70s and early 80s and subsequently appeared on bootleg and one-off compilations, the genre didn't actually seem to have a name until that record label and until... Uh, Veronica started to kind of go back and re-release compilations and reissues but in the mid-2000s. She was a crate digger, she was a real enthusiast and I think it was her coalescing this sound, like finding these disparate people that seemed to have uh, a commonality in their music and then she brought it all together under this one umbrella, this one banner and so yeah, she's taking credit for it. I'm not going to deny it. I don't have anything against her. Um, for a 2009 publicity piece, Vashiska wrote that the music overlaps with several other genres. Minimal electronic, minimal synth, cold wave, new wave, techno pop or synth pop, depending on the particular style, year and location of the band. And she's she's identified people like Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, their album organisation, Depeche Mode, Speaking Spell, John Fox's Metamatic. I remember your face song. Some shatter and scream uh, Craftworks, The Man Machine Yellow Magic Orchestra's Solid State Survivor And early Human League has all been influential in the development of that genre. Uh, in its heyday, that music's uh, demographic had subcultures all over the world, most critically in Europe, particularly in the UK and in the US, where the machines used to create that were readily available, that the technology was really important. Apparently there was a fanzine called Clem, which stood for Contact List of Electronic Musicians, and that really helped coalesce a worldwide community of musicians in that genre prior to the use of the internet, and many of them supposedly collaborated on the pieces via mail, like Mm -hmm. postal mail. 
The genre's hallmarks include minimal musical structures, relatively unpolished production, and the use of analogue synthesizers and drum machines manufactured in the 70s and 80s. Uh, the instrumental arrangements typically feature mechanical beats and short repetitive patterns. I think we can all agree that applies. Mm-hmm. Plus noticeably synthesised drum programming and trebly thin melodies, which then emphasise the artificiality of the synthesised sound. Often, vocal arrangements acted as a counterpoint to that artificiality, which I think is an interesting one. So you've got very cold, clinical, repetitive, quite thin synth melodies and parts, but mm-hmm. then these lush, warm, dreamy or intrusive vocals, and that's something that this, this band really seemed to do. And musicians in the genre were often influenced as well by inf- uh, by avant-garde movements such as futurism and constructivism. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of quite highbrow you know it's got a lot of other aesthetics at play within it it's an, an arty thing exactly yeah <laughs> and you know they played at Tate Modern that all seems to kind of like mm-hmm. to, to be consistent there's a lot of like different ideas I think the minimal wave one seems the truest I get that some of the tech house elements do seem to apply but this band don't represent that to me they're not as full they're not as machine-like mm-hmm. as that seems to suggest and the post-industrial thing just because that term's so vague it's useful but it doesn't really say too much yeah i, I would uh, veronica vashiska's description of them is pretty good i think yeah and so the other thing that really occurs to me about this band is repetition mm-hmm it's a huge part of everything they do right from the early like the bipolar single all the way through up to the current day. And so I wanted to kind of look at a wee bit of the philosophy of repetition in music. Yeah. Um, there's a, a, a lady called Elizabeth Helmut Margulis. Uh, she's the director of music cognition uh, laboratories at University of Arkansas. Really interesting woman, does a lot of studies into the, the psychological impact of music, the, the, the subconscious things that are going on when we're listening to music. Um, she talks about the, quote, mere exposure effect, which is this really well-established phenomenon where we we like what we know and recognise generally. Yeah. Um, there's much more activity in the human brain uh, if we are interacting with music that we know, even if we consciously dislike it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's it, a predictability. Yeah, it, but it also evokes, the, the, there's predictability, but there's also familiarity and mm-hmm. there's a comfort and a, there's an association with that. Have you ever noticed as well, I mean, this is purely anecdotal, right? But in later years, I've become quite fond of tracks that I used to hate when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Going to clubs and the tracks come on and yeah. I'm like, I used to think that was so naff, but actually I'm quite in it. Me too, but when I say predictability, I don't mean, I'm not, that's not a judgement on the music, that's the familiarity of it. Is You know what you're going to get, that's the predictability of it. Mm. And not being able to predict or know what's going to happen, that is associated with anxiety. So predictability, yeah. familiarity, routine, mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff is associated with, you know, comfort and the opposite of anxiety. Yeah, I mean, humans like patterns, right? So... Mm-hmm. It's analogous for so many other aspects yeah. of human condition mm-hmm. anyway, isn't it? Yeah, um, Mar- of course. Margulis actually speaks about that. Um, she's, she's quoted as saying, repetition changes the way we listen, fundamentally, um, so that when, 
when we are listening, we're actually imagining the next note before it happens. I think you're kind of saying mm-hmm. that as well, that sense of anticipation, but anticipation from the perspective of knowing what you expect. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and within that, she's described in, in their studies how, that, uh, how, how they've noticed that that can draw us into observing subtleties and details far more closely within the music. You know, once you're familiar with it or once you're familiar with the idea of it and the genre, the style, what you expect. You're no longer preoccupied by things like central melodic themes and the shock to the system. You start really becoming immersed in the tones, mm-hmm. echoes, effects, the, the the nuances of performance, the, the, yeah. the intricacies of that performance. Definitely. I mean, people get obviously get extremely infatuated with the minute details of, you know, people like Hendrix and all that, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the artists that attract total aficionados. So she talks about that effect, you know, how people become very, very very immersed in, in very precise detail. And I think that's a huge part of Factory Floor. The subtle modulations, the little, the way that an ARP can run for seven minutes, but there's just modulating on it. It's just changing tone yeah. and pitch, changing tone and pitch. Absolutely. And I think a lot of these so-called minimalist artists or, you know, artists that are using repetition, repetitive structures, they know that and they harness it. And that's why they've got so many layers built into their music mm-hmm. as well. Because when you're listening, a few, once you've kind of like like you say you're you're not concentrate on the central theme or what I can't remember what what words you use there the, the central the central melodic themes the yeah. central melodic theme <laughs> um, you then your mind does start to pick up the other parts that are mm-hmm. coming through and I think that's something that I quite like about that type of music is following all those different layers and the textures that are that yeah. are built into it. So you you mentioned Philip Glass. So Philip Glass, Steve Reich, Terry yeah, Riley. Steve Reich. People mm-hmm. who've all made an appearance in this show in the past. In mentions, not in person. <laughs> yeah. nice. um, they all repeat melodies and parts ad nauseum. That mm-hmm. is that's a big feature. It's it's almost an experiment. It's almost it's a, a device. Um, Lubomir Melnik he did he did that a lot. Um, you know, changing one tiny little ingredient in a flurry of notes that just repeats for seven minutes, you know, and you, you suddenly that minute change starts to really stick out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's phasing like or something the like princess that. Princess and mm-hmm. the pea, you know, that one note changing mm-hmm. starts to really irritate or excite, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there were 20th century composers, like neoclassical composers, uh, a guy called Luciano Berio, uh, a guy called Elliot Carter. who specifically intentionally avoided all repetition in their music. Um, it's actually, I mean, going back, classical music frequently avoided repetition. You know, uh, did it? Pashbell's Canon, Beethoven's Fifth? Frequently. Not a lot. They're, they're quite repetitive. Yeah, but if you look at things like sonatas, there are there are certain um, motifs that return, but they return in different forms. They return in different timings on different instruments. Um, but... Even, you know, if you take something as simple as like Moonlight Sonata. If that was written today, 
that part would be repeated and played and developed and fleshed out much, much more. But in fact, the bit that we all know and identify as Moonlight Sonata, you know, that, that piano line, that beautiful piano line, doesn't actually go on for very long at all. It develops and then shifts quite a bit. And so you don't get that ability to sit and bask in this mm-hmm. melodic refrain with a lot of these kind of classical pieces the way you would now um certainly with something you know like i mean look at post-rock if that's the equivalent of neoclassical post-rock now tends to stretch passages out for a long time to allow the listener totally. to really like your, your classical stuff is progressing much faster isn't it mm-hmm. whereas your like more modern minimalist stuff is making a progression that would happen over a short space of time in classical music would happen for a much longer period of time in like modern minimalism. Yep. So as an experiment, um, Elizabeth uh, Margulis's team or the, the folks at University of Arkansas took some of the compositions by Luciano Berio. And they digitally modified parts of it to actually create loops within the music mm-hmm. and then sort of did blind tests on audiences. And the, the, the versions of the songs with the loops got far higher ratings of approval from these audiences. Mm-hmm. People liked them better. Yeah, but when, people don't know shit. Yeah, but <laughs> it is just interesting. And so, they, I kidding. mean, they extrapolated this a lot uh-huh. and it, it, it actually led to this really beautiful, quite grand, quite meta hypothesis that... The reason that we relate to repetition is because it implies communication or or it implies an attempt at communication. So if you think about it again anecdotally, right, Morse code, if somebody's trapped under a rubble, you're listening for a repetitive pattern. Oh, there might be a survivor there. That's not that's not an organic noise. That's a pattern. That's somebody trying to communicate something. You know, if we're listening to the stars, you know, SETI, listening for uh, extraterrestrial intelligent life, we're listening for patterns Mm -hmm. we're listening for repetitive patterns sometimes we get fucking fooled by quasars and things like that right but those patterns are what we interpret as attempts at communication even just animal behavior if an animal repeatedly comes to your house or Mm -hmm. does a certain thing you're like what's this animal trying to tell me it gets your attention so even like you know uh, alarms going off and things like that you can't for one if you hear an alarm going off in the distance you can't then ignore it you're preoccupied with it and it's an attempt at communication and it's an attempt so communication, there's a really yeah. primal uh-huh. thing in us where we look for patterns this is the case where you know that whole thing where you see faces in wood yeah, totally. it's also the case in sound where you hear messages mm. in sound you uh-huh. hear an attempt at communication mm-hmm. and you get locked into it and try and interpret it and I just think it's fascinating I mean I'm not saying for a minute factory floor are digging into the kind of the meta concepts no, of it but the philosophy the, behind it or yeah this is this is the result of decades eons of you know human evolution and these Mm. things coming to the fore Um, but this is also a way of me trying to understand what is it about this music that I particularly like Mm -hmm. because it doesn't have huge melodic hooks it doesn't have real impact or aggression, it's very subtle, sometimes obnoxiously subtle, like come on guys could you fucking ramp it up a wee bit, you know it deliberately, almost obstinately refuses to step up Mm -hmm. when you really think it's gonna yet I'm still in with it and I think there's a lot of these bigger ideas at play in that. Mm-hmm. There's also the whole basic notion of dance in general, right? 
like repetition works very well in dance because you want to keep the beat going so you can keep people moving, keep your body moving, mm-hmm. and keep connected to you know, the music of the people around you. When I hear this, I hear dance music of, of, of a kind and they, they play into that repetition with that. You know, I think, I imagine seeing them live would pretty much feel repetitive from start to finish because they're keeping the beats going and just change them up so that they don't become really dull. But any DJ wants to keep the dance floor full, right, and keep people moving is much the same for this, I would say, as well. So we have a wee tour of the tracks a bit, mm-hmm. the album itself. Sure. Um, I mean, Mark, before we even mention the first song, I'm curious for a sort of synopsis of how easy did you find this to listen to? I don't mean how much did you like it, but was it difficult to It wasn't difficult to listen to. It was tested, it tested my patience. Yeah. As some reviews called the band Punishing. I think they are punishing, but I don't think they're punishing because they're sonically punishing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's what I said about them being obstinate. Yeah, like sometimes uh-huh. obstinate, like, yeah. Uh-huh. You know what you're doing and it's a bit wide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't actually think that's an unfair verdict. Um, so the opening track, Turn It Up, is probably a good example of that. It's a strange choice for an opening track. It's got the, I mean, even just the way it begins with that constant boxy tone. I mean, thankfully, when that kick comes in, it offsets it and it starts to kind of push against that initial tone and that sort of little Latin push thing starts to emerge. It really needs that, but it's it's still a very bold way to sort of announce because it's, I mean, it's bold because it's not bold. It's bold because it's really underwhelming. You're like, what is this? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I fully agree with that because... The analog percussion, particularly, and the push and the beat, gives it a disco feel to me, which just goes on much longer than a disco <laughs> oh God, song would. Does. You know what I mean? Yeah, but they, it has a hint, it has a root of that in it. You know? I mean, they start to like pepper in these little tones. We probably know it as the Whitney Houston tone mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. "I Want to Dance with Somebody." It's actually, I found this out, it's the cowbell tone from a TR eight oh eight machine. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, Apparently quite an iconic Well it is an iconic tone Because we all recognise it I just didn't know that's what it was mm-hmm. The fact is though That after initially sort of drippy droppy Putting that in You know bringing in the dreamy vocal samples Which it's nice It's not too offensive But then the fucking seriously over egg That cowbell tone towards mm-hmm. the end of the song yeah. Almost as if they're trying to piss you off It's too much by mm. the end of the tune. They're just like, yeah, I think this is where I started, like, you know, sweating, <laughs> <laughs> having like terrible flashbacks and just, yeah, all that kind of stuff. There's just, there's something a little bit druggy about totally. this for me. Um, I think that I find that that's the, the panicky part for me. I feel like, it, you know, it's the kind of anxiety attack of. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard not to be anxious when that cowbell's going. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, where I think this song works is in hindsight, because you realise when they start to do things that are more commercially savvy, shall we say, that there was a statement with that first song, and it's quite anti-commercial. It's it's, it's quite punk in its sensibility. Like, it's not got a baseline. It's quite unpleasant. Mm Mm-hmm. Like it induces these this sense of unease and it's like wow you chose to start your album with a song that is quite unsettling and it's not even going to get on any dance floors you know mm-hmm. it's that part of it I think is, is really interesting that choice mm-hmm. um, especially 
since they then follow it with here again. Which is much more willing to cooperate as a song in yeah. itself. Um, the remodulated arp that bursts into an actual song when the drums arrive at about 58 seconds. And when those drums arrive as well with that arp, they also shift where we're hearing the one in the bar. You know, you think with the arp you've got the count, and then the drums arrive and you realise that the count that they've got is completely different from yours, and that's quite nice. Um, more of those vocal textures, which are a big feature of Nick's work in this band. And a, a variety of different samples. It seems like they've just had like a sample pad with like sixteen presets yeah. on it and been randomly bashing them. That are, but they're good. They're well chosen. They're interesting. Mm-hmm. Bring a lot of novel textures to it. Um, and the hi hat in this is really crucial to giving it some momentum as well. Mm. Uh, about two minutes forty five. There's a counter melody that 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 turns the tune into a wee bit of a bopper. Gives it some melodic interplay. Quite clubby uh, at that point, I think. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. it sounds at that point, frankly, that the band are having fun. Mm-hmm. You know, it's you can imagine the performance. I've seen the performance, but it sounds like you, you can hear the, the enjoyment. It's it's, it's it's a big tune for them. See the vocal. There's a really interesting vocal harmony in it all the way out. That makes it all the way throughout, which is a really strange choice of note. It makes it really sound really uneasy, mm-hmm. particularly when they throw the reverb on it. It just makes me go, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is interesting. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, the third track one is just a little oddball intermission vocal sample loop thing. Fourth track fall back. Was kind of their flagship song with mm. this record. You know, it's one that I think you see getting talked about. It's a, a head lot. bopper as well, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, throbs in and out. It, it does this thing early on where it, it, it teases like it's about to start playing and then it keeps killing the line. Yeah. And you just are like, oh, come on, you fuck, I know. just get fucking mm-hmm. started. Mm-hmm. You know, they do that quite a bit. Um, a four at the floor kick that comes in. There's a low bass sequencer. I'm glad there's a low bass in this one. It, it, it gives it some guts. And the vocal samples in it as well, they spread the sonics out nicely. Uh, there's a snare about a minute and a half that really gels the whole song together, yeah. that, that gives it its groove. Starts moving. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the modulation on the sequencer at the back is what I was talking about. When something's repetitive and you're able to really hone in on the details, mm-hmm. the modulation in this song is brilliant. It gets really snarly and present and then starts to get quite gainy and overdriven around about three minutes onwards. I think it's a really strong example of the the genre, whatever genre that is, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and the, the the sound this band made at this stage. Mm-hmm. It's got a, it's almost got a fade out in the outro as well when they kind of bring it down, mm-hmm. and it feels like it's ending, which is pretty clever. The thing I liked about 
this at this point was that they're they're doing the same thing through all these songs, but they're changing it up just enough, like we've spoken about like ad nauseum <laughs> throughout this mm-hmm. podcast, that it makes it kind of different, mm-hmm. you know. I remember you'd I think it's the first time I'd mentioned this band, you'd you'd mentioned Jay Dilla. Mm-hmm. And 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 that style of hip hop, that choppiness and stuff. Do mm-hmm. you still get that from it? A little bit, yeah. I mean, it's the analog. It's just like the analog synth sound. You know, he uses quite a lot of that because he's taking loads of samples from like seventies music, which would have been using that kind of as well as the. We knew, as we discussed, we knew they weren't live drums, but they, he played them like live drums. He played the samples like live yeah, drums. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fifth track. Which is called Two uh, It's just another retransition track It's I think it's Nick doing loads of guitar dissonance It's quite sort of like Like a noise rock band warming yeah. up or something like that mm-hmm. And then track six How You Say is much more kind of acid techno. I mean, even I know that's that's mm-hmm. quite acid techno, the mm-hmm. squelchiness of it. It has a really high fuzzy synth pulse in it. Um, the the vocal loops in this one, I think, are a little bit more anthemic, almost like you're, you know, you could kind of, if you knew it, sing along with them. I like that this feels more electro and if the vocal is less obscure it is a bit more mm-hmm. like a, an actual song <laughs> like a hook yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the lead synth sounds cool it's like broken almost um, and yeah towards the end it gets quite clubby again mm-hmm. you know track 7 two different ways I think it's a really good one simple direct arp with this really punchy percussion cutting straight through and the two and the four very simple although i do also appreciate the fact that they used a very lethargic kind of a tonal vocal take to to offset what could have been quite a straight ahead tune um three minutes in i've written here it decays away into electro pebbles right it, it turns into these little kind of isolated bits of percussion just sort of rolling around into each other and then starts to build really nastily again about four minutes fifty. modulated surges in the synth that eventually lead into this harder, much more direct passage. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some nice real-world organic percussion samples in this as well. Again, it sounds like they've kind of taken little, you know, something stupid like putting a glass in a table, hitting a, a spoon off a radiator, you know, yeah. shit like that. That's like, what it sounds like, yeah. Random mm-hmm. tones, you know. Um, and from from six minutes, they just open the gate on the synth and it, the whole kind of arp line becomes much fuzzier and more fluid. It loses a snare at that point, but because the whole thing's cascading along, it doesn't lose the momentum. Mm. 
I quite enjoyed the percussion, whatever that was. I think I, I thought it sounded like yeah, somebody hitting a, a wooden spoon off a pan. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. an upturned pan, like just dinging. Um, it could well be that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's a is there some guitars around five minutes thirty or something. Whatever it is, it sounds like glass to me. Like I, it, that's how I would describe it. It's, it just sounds like glassy, and nice. You know, uh, track eight, known as three. It's actually quite a seductive wee interlude. I quite liked that. Yeah, a lot of the other interludes were quite throwaway, mm-hmm. and this one has a potential. Mm-hmm. You know, you're almost like, I wish that you turned that you, into a song. I, it's definitely. a pretty wee tune. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the track nine, Workout. I think it's quite iconic for fans of the band. The bass is very, very playful in it. The way mm-hmm. it just, like, you know, sort of like funky almost. It's funky and mm-hmm. it just, just surges in and out regularly. Um, really sets the tone for the song. Um, it's nice to hear a good bass line on this album because it's an album that doesn't insist on always having throbbing bass. I think the song's not entirely interested in, in letting you dance. I think it's a little bit more in, interested in enjoying its own sort of skittishness and its ideas, but it does manage to kind of strike a reasonable balance overall. I, I like that they mix it up by using a filter on the on the main melody on the synth, and like you said, kind of changed it up a little bit. But for me, the song was apart from the funky bassline, it didn't really mm-hmm. didn't really work out for me. Yeah, it, 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 you can tell this song could have been a banger, and they sort of fucked it up. A wee bit like they did with the opening track. They were they did they made a decision, a creative decision that was like, nah, that's too easy. Mm-hmm. Let's do something more obtuse. Yeah. Uh, and then the last track, breathe in. That big opening um, It kind of welcomes you back to the dance floor a bit um, Really druggy track uh, But has this really nice weird cyborg energy to it uh, There's uh, some really really nice little counter melodic bursts Around about five minutes Although I do notice that this tune really felt like it could go for the big ending and they deliberately shunned that again. Mm. It's like you could hear this song building up into an absolutely climactic ending and instead they just pair it back and bring it down and ease it out. Mm. Um, which, you know, given what they've done elsewhere in the album seems consistent mm. and is, is very them. Yeah, it's got a big, it's got a nice '80s vibe to it, I think. Mm-hmm. And they bring back that pan mm-hmm. percussion thing again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I quite enjoyed the, stu- the stuttering vocal as well. That I think that that works quite well, even though that, I usually find that kind of thing irritating. But I actually quite liked on this. Yeah, I guess in conclusion, as I said right at the start, I don't know why I like this album. Um, there was no reason for me to like it. I heard it in passing, and it just really stuck. And I. I really enjoy it, even though I find it really challenging at yeah. points, you mm-hmm. know. It, it is dissonant and annoying and frustrating, and yet that's part of why I like it. And I think that's also part of why I used to like a lot of music in different genres. Mm-hmm. If, it, if it annoyed me, it was like annoying in a good way. Mm-hmm. Annoying in a way that you knew they knew what they were doing, but they weren't always willing mm-hmm. to play the game. 
I just like where this is in their career, as I said. Um not gonna advocate for the album that followed it. Stuff before it is pretty good, the the bits and bobs, the EPs. But yeah, if if you think I was gonna say if you think you're not a kind of person that likes this kind of music, give it a shot, you probably won't even get to the end of track one. It's mm-hmm. it's tough going. Mm. It is, but I, I would like to spend more time with it because it's slowly kind of like what when I first started listening to it, I was texting you and I was texting you, I was like, Oh, what has he done? <laughs> is this for real? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think eventually I was like, actually, it's starting to grow on me because it does kind of find a way into your, it kind of sticks in your head yeah. and then you want to listen more because because it isn't doing what you expect it to do. And it is annoying when like it, it draws things right out and doesn't ever kind of progress to anything at times. And that can be dead frustrating. You can't shout at it. He's a fucking break. I know, totally. <laughs> but... um. I definitely think that's what probably makes it interesting. That's probably why you go back to it. And yeah, so I would like to spend a bit more time with it. And I, I really like the re- most recent album as well. I want to listen to that again. So so I mean, it's a maybe from you? you and the I, no, I think it should go in. Yeah. Cool. It's a maybe from me. Mm-hmm. I can I can see it getting played in the beer hall. <laughs> <laughs> By the cool bartender. <laughs> um, I, th- I liked it for focus. I liked their music for focus. I, I like the hypnotic. The hypnotic aspect of it means that I don't need to engage with mm-hmm. it too much. Um, I tried my very best to engage with it and listen to it, and it mm-hmm. was uh, it was okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, I I want to spend more time with their their last their latest album. More than this one, to be mm-hmm. honest. Yeah. All, all in all, uh, actually, that's quite encouraging because I thought you guys would kind of hate it. Because as I say, I, I wasn't even sure why I liked it. And so I, th- I kind of set the challenge for myself mm-hmm. to try and work that out and then make a case for it. So, yeah, I'll, I'll take it. Okay. Do you want to do an Nexus? Oh, yeah. Oh, boy, do I want to do an Nexus. Yeah. By the way, oh, yeah. the tougher the album, the better the Nexus. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> A complicated series of connections between different things. So whilst Chris finds his notes, uh, the Nexus is where we pick a, a person, a fictional character, a real character, and, and connect them to the artist of the week via Six Degrees of Separation style thing. Mm-hmm. And originally it was Dave Grohl, but then we killed it. Um, so this week we are getting from factory floor to Big Mags Haney. Vicky, Big Mags Haney, you chose this one. Yes, Big Mags Haney <laughs> um, is a well-known um, Scottish criminal. <laughs> um, That's actually very accurate. Yeah. <laughs> um, she's dearly departed. Um, I think she died in 2013. Yeah. She was the kind of head of a dr- drugs cartel. <laughs> yeah, a Scottish drugs cartel, yeah. which is really much less yeah. glamorous than narcos. I trust mean, me. I'm laughing. We're laughing about it, but it's grim. Yeah, they, they were they were a, they were a tough bunch. Uh, I'm from yeah. Stirling. Yeah, where where mm-hmm. Mags uh, where Mags was based. Where Mags was Mags. based. <laughs> we're on first name terms with Mags. Yeah. Well, actually, actually, my mum knew her personally really quite well. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? And my mum said, look. My mum had no illusion, you know, that family are, they're, yeah. a, they're a bad lot. You but mum said she was actually always very, very nice to her. Well, you know how that way, like, um, in the post Me Too world, we have certain people, like, overcorrecting their, like, um, sexism and stuff like that? 
to go the other way to kind of detract for the bad things that they've done. <laughs> mm-hmm. She was a total pitchfork wielding anti pedo vigilante type yeah, person, yeah. wasn't she? Yeah, she's 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 a poster child for that. Yeah, she she engaged in a campaign against uh, some alleged and actual paedophiles that drew were, a lot of attention that were to herself. In the area. Yeah, she ended up with politicians uh, doing petitions through uh-huh. Falkirk at one point as well. Oh. The only thing is, as I understand it, there was at least one, maybe a, a couple of others that got rolled up in that, what would you call it, crusade, who <laughs> were not paedophiles. <laughs> they were people oh. that had been mistaken for others, yeah. you know, and they, they got terrorised as a result of it. But I think that's partly my point. I think a lot of her motivation for doing that was to detract from the fact that she was like running heroin around the rat block, do you know what I mean? Yeah. That she had a very criminal mm-hmm. back enterprise going on. Yeah. So, big time heroin dealer in Stirling, uh, head of a family of nutters. Uh, interesting <laughs> details appeared in Kilroy, <laughs> the daytime talk show, uh, <laughs> as part of the family... Was it the Neighbours from Hell? Aye, Family from Hell or family something like that said, yeah. um, And then she claimed that she was the inspiration for Mo Brooks' character in EastEnders. Maybe, really? By the way... That's Gary Oldman's sister, isn't it? Is it? M- Mo in EastEnders with the white hair. Yeah. That's Gary Oldman's sister there's in real life. Fucking, there's a nexus for you. I know. Gary Oldman in my... Uh, wow. <laughs> but honestly, like that, you know, it sounds daft at first and I've not checked out the timeline, but it actually could be something to that. Anyway, um, my nexus... The early factory floor track, A Wooden Box, from an EP called A Wooden Box, was remixed by a guy called Stephen Morris, who was a drummer of both New Order and Joy Division. Uh, New Order, or now Ordnung, was the social model the Nazis wanted to impose. Nazis. Second link, guys. There it is. Um, The band, however, maintained there is no relation to Nazi themes. Just as the same group of people maintained there were no uh, Nazi themes with Joy Division. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Just as they maintained that when Joy Division were formerly known as Warsaw Warsaw. and Ian Curtis would shout about Rudolf Hess on stage, um, which you can hear. Uh, I mean, it's pretty obvious that the guys in the band have a fascination with Nazis, right? But fair enough. I mean... I can't comment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's an interesting subject and people in glass houses shouldn't throw straight arm salutes. So, um, <laughs> contrary to rumour though, uh, it seems that the Nazis did not literally have anything called a joy division. Um, what they did have were groups of prisoners and designated brothels in camps used for a variety of awful things, uh, which includes curing, inverted commas, gay men who basically slept with a woman in, in order to get released. Because... There was Auschwitz 1 and Auschwitz 2 and Auschwitz 1. You could actually be released from it. It was a correctional thing. I mean, it obviously wasn't, but people were released from it. And one of the ways that homosexuals got out of Auschwitz 1 was by pretending they weren't. The German name of of at least one of those divisions was Kraft durch Freude. Um, I think the translation of that is something like joy will give you power. Joy brings power or something like that. Um, The phrase Joy Division actually comes from a book called House of the Dolls. uh, And some of their early lyrics are quoted from that as well. The book's considered pornographic fiction by Yad Vashem. That's the official Holocaust Remembrance Organisation. However, I think it is, or at least it was at some point, part of the Israeli high school curriculum. uh, Due to first-hand accounts of experiences of the Jews in the late 30s and 40s, as well as a primary account of life in the concentration camps. It was written by... By Kasetnik135633, also known as Yechael de Nur. 
been practicing that all fucking yes. day, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. um, have you had one to one tuition there? I have, mm-hmm. yeah. Right, okay. He was a Jewish writer <laughs> and a Holocaust survivor. His books were inspired by his times as a prisoner in Auschwitz. Uh, his work um, tends to blur the lines between fantasy and actual events and often consists of lurid novel memoirs, works that shock the reader with grotesque scenes of torture, perverse sexuality, and cannibalism. Denur has written under the pen name Katsetsnik135633, which is uh, a Katsetsnik is Yiddish for concentration camper, mm-hmm. uh, deriving from Katset, which is the pronunciation, <laughs> which is a, a bad pronunciation of KZ, the abbreviation for Konzentrationslager. Right. Right. So that's how he got to that name. Mm. And the 135633, I'm sure you've guessed, was the nurse inmate Mm. number, which I'm sure he probably had tattooed. Um, He also apparently at one point used uh, Karl Chechinsky when travelling as a refugee, which is another variation on that theme. But his civic identity was finally revealed when he testified at the Eichmann trial on the 7th of June 1961. Um, Adolf Eichmann was obviously abducted mm. uh, by Israeli secret services and taken to Jerusalem to, to face trial. It was it was Jerusalem the trial was held in, wasn't it? Wasn't I think so, yeah. Um, in his opening statement at that trial, uh, contrary to many depictions of it, uh, Deneur uh, rep- uh, presented the Holocaust as an entirely unique and almost otherworldly event, um, saying, I do not see myself as a writer who writes literature. This is a chronicle from the planet Auschwitz. I was there for about two years. The time there is not the same as it is here on Earth, and the inhabitants of this planet had no names. They had no parents and no children. They did not wear clothes the way they were here. They were not born there and did not give birth. They did not live according to the laws of the world here and did not die. Their name was the number K. Tsetsnik. And after saying that, he actually collapsed and gave no further testimony. Um, so, fascinating guy. Uh, House of Dolls uh, publication is actually also at times pointed to as being the inspiration behind the Nazi exploitation genre of serialised cheap paperbacks known in Israel as stalag fiction and it, these paved the way for Nazi exploitation movies like Love Camp 7 from 1969 and the sort of famous Isla She-Wolf of the SS I've from seen the, that 1975 I've seen that, oh my yeah, god it's So, Isla features in an interesting book called Super Bitches and Action Babes The Female Hero in Popular Cinema written by Danish author Ricky Schubert which muses in feminism and female roles in film and also includes a discussion of backlash post-feminism that saw characters appear in films who seemed to embody the notion that empowered or sexually confident or sexually aggressive women were a threat to the nuclear family and within that discussion it makes direct reference by way of an example to Alex from the film Fatal Attraction played by Glenn Close Really interesting book. It, it categorises like five different types of, of post-feminism reaction. This coming month, you can actually catch a stage production of Fatal Attraction at the Nottingham Theatre Royal starring ex-Coronation Street actress Kim Marsh in the role of Alex. I've wow. been told a little of her. Have you? Aye. This, aye. There you go, listeners. Kim Marsh has also hosted the Crime Plus Investigation channel documentary Murder at My Door. Ooh. Murder at My Door. Vicky, you fucking love this. You love a fucking I serial do. killer podcast oh, or oh, true yes, crime. I do. Right. That show tells the story of the murder of Margaret Fleming. Yes. Poor lady. In Inverkip. Yeah. Very Two sad. people, Edward Kearney and Avril Jones, were jailed for Margaret Fleming's murder in 2019. 
Uh, Jones had been appointed Margaret Fleming's carer in 1999 due mm. to her vulnerable status. Um, police suspect that the duo actually killed the 19-year-old at their cottage in Inverkip, Inverclyde, between December 1999 and January 2000. Her body's never been found, uh, but for the next 17 years, the pair claimed her benefits checks, mm. estimated to be a, a, a total of about £182,000. Um, when caught, they did a series of interviews, the police interviews available online, and they did some interviews with journalists, uh, claiming that the young woman was, oh God, it's so dark, was, was still alive and was in fact a drug kingpin in the region out past Port Glasgow and Greenock. Like, it's fucking demented it's and awful. Once convicted, uh, Jones was sent to serve out her 14-year minimum sentence in Cortonvale Correctional Institute. And another notorious... and famous, infamous alumni of that establishment was the bold Big Mags Haney. Well done. Nice. nice. Very nice. Very good. Well done. Is it me? Yeah, here okay. you go. I may have two, but I need, right. I need to discuss this, the first one live on air. Okay. <laughs> so, um, Nick Colk from Factory 4, but we've already discussed, was in this band Cato. Not mm-hmm. the Cato from Glasgow, but the Cato from England somewhere. Um, and was in this band with Dave Lake. Lake later played as a guitarist in the Norwich-based band Magoo, who released a couple of albums on Chemical Underground. Did they split the Mogwai? So, yeah, Chemical Underground is an independent record label that was set up by the Delgados, I think, in in, in Mm -hmm. the 90s in Glasgow. Um, It's well known for, among other things, being the label that put out Mogwai's debut studio album, and I think an, an EP before that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the Mogwai song Auto Rock. From an album that's been discussed on here, Mr. Beast, was featured in. Life After Pullment. Hmm. Life After Pullment was a BBC Scotland. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It was a BBC Scotland documentary investigating what happens to young offenders after they are released from Pullment, which is a former Borstal, now um, the largest young offenders institute just outside Falkirk, I think, in Scotland. That's uh, where my dad worked with. Really? Bad kids. Yeah. Apparently it's really violent. (laughs) <laughs> um, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole here last Aye. night just a bit like you looking at you know notable inmates and <laughs> it is uh, yeah. anyway um, it was reported in 2016 that inmates from Cortonvale Scotland's only all-female prison in the Corton area of Stirling would have to be transferred to Pullman as part of plans to wind down its operation um, it was expected to close by 2020 but obviously things have been delayed because of pandemic, etc. In 2003, Max Haney was jailed for 12 years in Cortonville Prison for dealing heroin alongside three other members of her family. She served six years and was released in 2009. And I've just written another wee note here that Max Haney looks a bit like a character out of The League of Gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> that's just a wee bonus at the end there. Uh, <laughs> Before I go to my Nexus, Chris, you know a band called Shit Disco? I've heard that. Yeah, I know the guy from them. Here's my Nexus coming live out my head right in front of you. So uh, Factory Floor were on Fierce Panda Records, which is the same record label as Shit Disco were on. You know the guy from Shit Disco, your Monument Max, ain't it? Yay! <laughs> Woo! 
<laughs> yes, I, I, I know Joel reasonably well. Yeah, there you go. <gasps> Done. Bad at bing. <laughs> I was trying so hard oh, to make it fit, but just yeah. by googling, and I was like, wasn't getting there. But I was like, I'm fucking sure he knows them. So yep. there you go. There you go. But my, my actual nexus is a bit more interesting. <laughs> um, so as we've discussed, Factory Four consists of Gabriel Guernsey and Nick Coke. Um, Nick Coke, like I said, she she played with and released records alongside Chris Carter and Cozy Fanny Tutti from Throbbing Gristle under the name Carter Tutti Void. I actually listened to their second album and I actually quite liked it. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2019, they were one of 58 artists that contributed to the Mute Records compilation STUMM433, which was 58 artists doing their version of 4 minutes and 33 seconds by John Cale. On that compilation, uh, and perhaps one of Mute's biggest artists, are Depeche Mode, who do a version of uh, 4 minutes and 32 seconds. Obviously, a well-known song by them is Just Can't Get Enough. Do you want to know why? <laughs> I think I know why. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've got a suspicion. It's often, it could be the Glorious Hoops. Uh, it's often played at Celtic Park when Celtic's gone, right? Um, but, but apparently it started off as a green gauge to sing it, right? Um, so uh, in 2011 the Good Child Foundation otherwise known as the Ty Tims recorded a version as a tribute to Raymond Gormley um, Raymond Gormley was a, a young boy who was in Thailand with these kids and on the day he returned home to Scotland was stabbed to death in Blantyre mm-hmm. he was only 19 years old um, and apparently he was the one that taught them that song um, which is quite sweet mm-hmm. Um in the videotape tribute version of the song, his name is cited as an influence, and it says in it that um, him, Jinky Johnson, and Tommy Burns would be smiling down upon them. Um, Tommy Burns was, of course, a Celtic legend. His first managerial position was at Kilmarnock, where he was a player manager before becoming full time manager um, after he retired. Current head of the football academy at Kilmarnock is a guy called Paul Giacomo. Di- Di Giacomo. Uh, Di Giacomo, yeah. Um, and he had a brief spell at Sterling Albion on loan from Kilmarnock. And it just so happens that Big Mags Haney is from Sterling. So. Oh, <laughs> that last jumps up there. <laughs> I know, doing I so well. Told you, told you it was vague. Big Mags Haney played, played left back for Sterling <laughs> Albion. <laughs> Chris used to play five sides down at Sterling Albion's fourth bank. And then... Chris's mum knows Mags. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There you go, I did it for you. <laughs> I had to, so fuck you, both. <laughs> I always get told off because I can't be bothered with the titans. <laughs> it's really nice, right? See, but the, I, I, I like the whole charity thing, it's really nice and everything. But oh my God, no, I don't want to hear 50 Thai kids singing Fields of and Rye or whatever. Do you know what I mean? I just don't. Um, I'm no, I'm a heartless cow, but like, <laughs> I just, I don't want that. Right. Well, we got through it. That's good. Feeling good. Yeah. Right. You didn't shit yourself. You didn't throw up. No, nothing came out that wasn't meant to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so next week uh, we will be releasing a bonus episode, which the bonus people have already heard, um, and it sounds a pound number four. It's <laughs> a fucking screamer. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 I think it contains the streets. Plan B and Bush. Oh, so. I listened to that Plan B. Oh my God. I Yeah. If you um, want to hear Dave being raging, then oh. that's just the episode for you. Yeah. Um, subs, uh, you will be getting some new stuff as well soon. And as part of the new tiered system, we've also made a commitment to a certain minimum amount of bonus stuff every month. So mm-hmm. again, go and check out the new subscription tiers, the Record Club. Uh, go and listen to the little clip that we did explaining it. Uh, and please give it some serious thought because it could be something pretty awesome. I and um, Vicky, we'll see you back here pretty yeah. soon. Mm-hmm. Yep. Cool. 
See you in a couple of weeks. Ta-da.